0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on.
3: conversations about connecting and communicating. We're starting our fourth season of Clear and Vivid very soon now, and we thought we'd bring you a little preview of what the conversations will be like. I'm joined today by Graham and Sarah and Alice and our team, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the conversations coming up. Our first conversation is with Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State. And she's a delightful conversationalist. And she's also an inventor of new ways of doing diplomacy. She created this practice of wearing a pin that had a special meaning that was easily understood by the person she was negotiating with. And she'd wear it into the meeting and everybody would be on edge. What does the pin mean today? And so she'd have an advantage because she had the guessing game going. And then she had this other invention that was really interesting.
4: I invented the art of diplomatic kissing. You can't kind of visualize Henry Kissinger arriving somewhere and giving somebody a big hug or, you know, uh, Jim Baker or whatever. So I started that, and um, it's much more complicated than meets the eye because in Latin America, some kiss on the right cheek and some on the left cheek, and in France, on um, both cheeks, and the Dutch three times and all that. So I arrive in South Korea, and big embrace, good meeting, uh, and then. Um, we, I leave, and all of a sudden I get a call from a journalist saying, don't you think the um, South Korean foreign minister should be fired for what he said about you? And I said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, I really like it when Secretary Albright comes because we're about the same age, and when I embrace her, she has very firm breasts. <laughs> so what do you have to say about that? And I said, well, I have to have something to put those pins on. <laughs> So they've gotten me into trouble and out of trouble.
5: (laughs) There was another great moment in your talk with Secretary Albright when you were discussing her book Fascism, and and you wondered how a repressive dictator like Mussolini could possibly come to power. And she responded with what she said was her favorite quote from the book.
4: Uh, If you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices.
3: And, And that was Mussolini speaking, right?
4: Yes, right, yeah.
3: Sarah you you were really taken with Carol Burnett you you were, you were such a fan person when we talked with Carol
6: Oh I believe the term is fangirl yes yeah. I, Well I, I
3: was not trying to be uh, you know <laughs> improper <laughs> <laughs> what struck you the most about Carol's conversation?
6: I loved that she worked really hard behind the scenes with the cast of the Carol Burnett show to really make them a family. And it reminded me of the conversation that you had had with the cast of Bash and, the, you know, that you had done improvisation together, that you you tried to bring a lot of family element into this, that you were all. Friends and pals. At the end of the day, and she also brought up a really good point about how each one of the episodes that they created, the the scenes that they did, uh, that they were they were sort of timeless. They, you know, there wasn't anything that was overtly political about them. There wasn't anything that was stuck in time or sort of too polarizing to any type of audience. And you know, she had just some brilliant people on there who understood what was kind of funny about the things that go wrong in your life. Exactly.
5: And there's a very nice moment in uh, one of the classic moments in The Carol Burnett Show that illustrates that point perfectly. Um, It involves Tim Conway in a sketch he was doing with Harvey Korman set in a dentist office. Conway died just a few days after we recorded this interview with Carol But during the interview, she told us that the funniest parts of that sketch were, in fact, not even included in the rehearsal, that Tim Conway invented them as he went along as they were shooting it. He was just improvising. And that prompted you to ask this question, Alan. How much improvising was there in rehearsal or on camera during the show?
4: Well, Tim totally improvised. <laughs> yeah, he, he
3: would love to surprise people oh, and make totally. make you laugh. Oh
4: yeah, yeah, and you know people think uh, sometimes we were criticized because oh you shouldn't be doing laughing like that, but it wasn't as often as people think because they just remember it. <laughs> right, you know. But I and would it's say,
3: involuntary, right? I mean, you can't stop it once, once you start to break up. Yeah, you can't, the more well, you try to stop it, the worse it gets.
4: Tim was merciless. <laughs> yeah. Totally merciless. Like in the dentist sketch, half of that stuff he did on air, which he didn't do in the dress rehearsal. Oh, wow. That's why Harvey was... <laughs> Tim swears Harvey wet his pants. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and Harvey prided himself on being very serious about his comedy. Yeah. Yeah, he did not like it when, uh, when he broke up.
3: Carol is great. She'll be one of our guests as we begin season four. And another of our guests are two folks who create one of the best podcasts I've ever heard, maybe the best. It's called Ear Hustle. That was some day that we recorded that, wasn't it?
6: That was an amazing recording session with uh, Nigel Poor and, and Erlon Woods, and Erlon's sentence had recently been commuted by the by the governor of California. Yeah, and it's,
3: it's, uh, we ought to mention, in case anybody doesn't yeah. know, that the podcast is made, it's created in San Quentin prison, talking to real inmates, and Erlon, who is uh, one of the hosts, was an inmate there until he recently was pardoned. Yeah, and, and it's, it's an extraordinary broadcast. I just, I just love it.
6: It's, it's brilliantly produced. It's, it's well written. Um, it's, it's done by Radiotopia. Um, and it was it, they, they were the recipient of an award to to actually make this happen, and um, they happened to be here in New York, and we we kind of caught them on a little bit of a tour, and uh, a memorable moment aside from the clip that we're gonna play was that. Erlon had never seen snow in his entire life. And he was here in, in New York um, and part of the, the sort of winter month and he was going off to Central Park to see snow for the first time. That's
5: right. And snow wasn't the only thing that Erlon encountered for the first time since being released from San Quentin. Here he is talking with his co-producer, Nigel Poor, about their first breakfast together outside the prison.
3: The funniest part was, you know, we sit now. So you go from in prison to to that morning. You had a the uh, graphics table, and they come with the knives. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I held that.
5: a
2: knife up. I was like, ooh, this could have had me
3: in a hole for like.
5: <laughs> yeah, no metal. <laughs> wow. So,
3: and then it was different from metal
2: touching my teeth because mm. I had been eating with plastic spoons for years. You know, so years. so the metal, you're like, okay, you can't hit them that hard. Yeah. Because that hurt.
0: And glass, you had had orange juice
3: out
2: of a glass, so it it
3: was
6: just different. That part was different. Um, Can I tell you a nice memory I have from the meal that we had? Because we had a meal together, Uh. and the um, in prison you can't share food. Like I I bring my meal in, and I can never share food, and I can't eat what Erlan. What's the reason for that? It's it's um, over familiarity. -familiarity. It's yeah. So what for me was really beautiful about the first meal we had together is we could actually taste each other's food. Like, for the Mm. first time, I could say, try what I'm having. And then I took a bite off of his plate, like, just like you would with a friend. And, like, we'd never been able to do that. I'm going
3: to say in prison, I don't think nobody wanted Nigel
5: Food in prison. (laughs) 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 He didn't bring in great enough stuff. One of my favorite episodes was with the scientist and author Hope Jarron. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book a couple of years ago called Lab Girl, which is completely entrancing. She manages to weave together her own personal story as a scientist with this sort of inside story of plants. You, When you read it, you really begin to feel that you understand plants for the first time ever. There was a moment in the conversation when she described something that's always intrigued and fascinated me about being a scientist. The, the moment when you discover something that nobody else has ever discovered before, and you are the only person that knows that thing for a while. His hope describing that moment for her?
7: Well, it was a strange night. You know, it was in the middle of the night because it required some instrumentation that had to be shared, and that's when I could get it. And and this was before cell phones and before the internet. And and so you so I remember it happening in the middle of the night and having to wait until an appropriate time to call somebody and say, oh, guess what it worked? This is what I found, you know, and and have and I remember standing in the lab and watching the sun come up and realizing that, you know, until I told somebody this was my, this was my secret, that this was something the universe had given just to me. And that these hours were going to be hours that I held this in my hand and some kind of I mean we're all looking for proof that the individual matters that there's something existentially unique about each one of us but I feel like for those hours I I had the answer to that and and you know that wasn't a cure for cancer or something right it was a little piece of information but I just and I just felt well if I'm worthy of a small uh, gift like that maybe someday I'll be worthy of a big one And I just remember it was such a beautiful, lonely moment.
3: Why was it lonely?
7: Well, I was alone. And I was, you know, for better or worse, I I really believed I was the only person on earth who knew this little thing. And that's, and that's, it's a lonely place to be. And science can be a very lonely place to be. I also knew that. The vast majority of folks that I explained it to would see it as maybe boring or, or esoteric or, or nerdy or, you know, all this kind of stuff you worry about when you're 20. So well, how, how, yeah. <laughs> 24. <laughs> I,
3: 24 to discover something new about nature is very nice.
7: It, it, it was one of the great moments in my life.
3: Another conversation coming up in our fourth season is one that I really loved having with Adam Driver. He's such an extraordinary actor and a really unusual person. He's taking his celebrity and using it to help a group of people that you don't often hear mixed in with theatrical enterprises, the military. In fact, you don't often find an actor who found his beginnings in the marines as adam driver did and in the conversation we had he seemed to feel very strongly that his time in the marines was a really good preparation for his acting career
1: i think that's also what's hard to convey to the i think the gen- civilians about uh, the military as it is you know um think of it as a a group that's just drills and discipline and pain, but it's, mm-hmm. it is this uh, organization that's run by people and those yeah. people have families on top of these incredibly stressful jobs and uh, what, that's why it's always great to kind of hire a veteran because you're going to get someone on the whole, not always obviously, but who's just more organized, you know, who's used to being put in a given responsibility at a very early age, who's told to just execute this you know what, whatever whatever mission or plan right. or agenda, right. and and it's going to be done thoughtfully. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, it's kind of infinite. The, the it's it, for me, it was very helpful. Maybe not for everybody, but for me, it was helpful.
3: Sarah, you you have experience. With someone in the Marines too. Was your your dad was in the Marines.
6: My father was in the Marines, and um, I I agree with with Adam that um, that hiring people who have had a military career is is great because they they come in with a with a wonderful spirit um, and they know they know their job, they know process, they know operations really well. And I 100% support the idea that he brought to this, which was you should hire people who come from a military background.
3: And you know where you speak from because you hired Allison.
8: <laughs> I did. <laughs>
3: Allison, you spent six years in the Navy.
8: I did, yeah. And um, when I was in the service, I always appreciated when people would give back. Um, Adam mentioned MWR, which stands for Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, and his nonprofit um, performs like impromptu theatrical skits, which helps expose service members to another form of entertainment um, aside from some of the other usual activities.
3: And also has a program where he encourages them to write. And right. sometimes they've never written anything of that kind before, and it opens up a whole new world for them.
8: Yeah, that's true. Um, part of military training is learning to. Work as a team and a unit and remove yourself from the picture. So, um, taking time to reflect on your experiences is really important and is a great way for service members to think about what they're doing and their effect on the community.
3: And another aspect of military training that I think is really important in acting is discipline and uh, an understanding of the importance of discipline. Acting is a very disciplined occupation. It looks like people are just getting up and behaving naturally, but there are so many constraints on them. It's, it's not as natural as it appears. That's the trick, is to make it look
5: natural. And that takes a lot of discipline. A little later in the season, we have a guest who Alan and I have actually met a couple of times before, usually in the company of chimpanzees. Uh, Franz de is a primatologist whose life's mission is to show us that we're not so different from the rest of the animals as we may think we are. And the new book he's written, called Mama's Last Hug, is all about how animals experience emotions not unlike our own. Mama is a female chimpanzee who lived for many years in a zoo in Holland where Franz did his early work. He told several stories about Mama's extraordinary ability to exert power over the colony. Here's one of them.
2: She was she was the only one because she was the alpha female. She was older than most and um she was so highly respected that in the middle of a fight she could just walk in the middle and um stop it. And uh, other females if they would do that they would probably get beaten up. Uh, but um, no one is gonna gonna do that to her. I still remember a case where we had a young alpha male who was not very accepted by the group, and um, he he imposed his will, so to speak. But um, they also chased him on occasion, and so the whole the whole colony had chased him into a tree, and he was in the top of the tr- of the tree screaming, and he couldn't get out. Each time he came down, the other chimps would chase him back up. And, and after 15 minutes or so of that, um, Mama, very slowly, because she was a very slow female, she slowly climbed up that little tree and she touched um, the alpha male and she kissed him and she brought him back down and no one objected anymore. So that was a bit, like, she was a bit a representative of the representative of the colony. Like, if she decided to do that, then it was okay. If somebody else had done that, I'm sure I would not have been okay.
3: Another of our guests next season will be Katie Couric, who is not only a charming talker and an intelligent, busy person in making the world better, she she has the ability to reveal things about herself that benefit the rest of society, like that amazing time. She kind of changed the world, Sarah, when she let her colonoscopy become a public event.
6: Yeah, I mean, it brought about a, an absolute paradigm shift in the way that people were able to talk with their doctors, um, and the, it added language, a new language, back into into medicine, which was that people could use the word like colon and not feel uh, not feel worried about using it, not feel embarrassed, uh, and that uh, she also mentioned that the same thing applied to breast cancer too, that you could say breast on TV or in print, Um, you didn't have to replace it with the word chest, and that you could go to the doctor and have a more authentic and engaged conversation with them because you now had this, you were now sort of emboldened to say what was really wrong with you.
3: Of all the things you've done in your life that have been really extraordinary, when you made your colonoscopy (laughs) public, (laughs) that had such a big impression on the whole country and on me too.
0: Well, I think uh, getting up close and personal with my colon was well. <laughs> kind of going to be the first, maybe the first line of my obituary, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, but, <clears> I was thinking <throat> that
3: before. You must be so sick and tired of hearing about no, your colon. Huh? Honestly,
0: I'm not because people come up to me still, Alan, and say, I got screened because of you. And, and, and I'm
3: sure many people were saved.
0: And they, some people say that as well. Mm. And, um, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon as someone who's kind of studied communication and has been in, and is a great communicator yourself and interested in, I know, how scientists distill complicated concepts. I think that resonated because I had been through such a, a personal tragedy. And I think in order for something to really seep in, to permeate our psyches and to really have an impact and to change hearts and minds, you do have to have that emotional connection,
3: That's just a brief sample of some of the wonderful conversations that are coming up in our fourth season of Clear and Vivid. And don't forget, we love to hear from our listeners on social media. I can't remember all those words. Sarah, you say it.
6: We love to hear from all of our listeners on social media. And you can write to us at podcast at aldacommunication.com. We love to hear about your guest suggestions, some of the questions that you want us to ask, uh, and your general feedback about the show. And you can find us on Facebook. It's at Clear and Vivid. You can find us on Instagram, also at Clear and Vivid. And you can find us on Twitter at...
3: That's me, at Alan Alda.